Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. The awareness of the missing and murdered indigenous people issue is growing, but is any of it making a difference? The Yurok tribe is taking matters into their own hands and hiring an investigator to look into the tribe's unsolved MMIW cases. It's the latest in a series of initiatives the tribe is taking on to tackle the issue. And several states are also putting money into strengthening law enforcement communication and research. We'll get an update on the newest efforts to improve the statistics for Native people right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The former chairman of the Blackfeet Nation has resigned from the Tribal Council following his arrest last week. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. Blackfeet Tribal Business Council members last week announced that board member Tim Davis was arrested for disorderly conduct and threatening a public official. The allegations are related to legal charges family members face for selling and possessing drugs, including fentanyl, at Davis's home last year. The council was scheduled to hold an expulsion hearing for Davis this week, but he resigned before the hearing, according to a press release from the council. Nearly a year ago, police arrested nine people at the home of then-Tribal Chair Davis on drug-related charges. Shortly after, the Blackfeet Tribal Business Council unanimously voted to remove Davis as chairman, but he continued to serve on the council. Davis denied that he knew anything about the drugs at his home. According to the release announcing Davis's resignation, he said, quote, I understand the importance and high standard of conduct that each member of the Blankfeet Tribal Council must conduct oneself, which is why I am resigning, end quote. The Blackfeet Nation will hold a special election on April 25th to fill Davis's seat through the end of his term in July. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. Leaders of the Wabanaki Nations are calling on Maine lawmakers to recognize tribal sovereignty and help ensure a better economic future for their youth. The first State of the Tribes address in two decades was recently delivered, focusing on self-determination and economic collaboration with the state. Catherine Carley has more. Research shows the five Wabanaki tribes could be an economic engine for large parts of rural Maine, but restrictions set in the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act of 1980 ensure the tribes are governed under state law. The tribes are also not guaranteed access to federal programs like the other 574 federally recognized tribes in the U.S. Mi'kmaq Tribe Vice Chair Richard Sillaboy says self-governance would bring jobs and growth to one of the nation's poorest areas. This wouldn't just benefit the Native Americans. This would benefit the surrounding communities. This would benefit the state of Maine as a whole. Sillaboy says Wabanaki tribes would benefit from available federal dollars, helping them to create local farming and mill jobs or extend hours at a fishery that once fed diners in Portland. A growing bipartisan effort is backing legislation that could avoid a veto by Governor Janet Mills, who has long opposed tribal sovereignty over concerns for land use and potential litigation. I'm Catherine Carley reporting. In its recent report, a Guatemalan human rights monitoring group says attacks on human rights defenders, including indigenous leaders throughout the country, are on the rise. Maria Martin reports. 
The organization called Edefegua, the Union for the Protection of Guatemalan Human Rights Defenders, says that in 2022, they documented over 3,500 attacks. These ranged from the criminalization of independent judges and prosecutors to threats and arrests of indigenous leaders opposing mining and palm oil projects to organized smear campaigns on social media. Edefegua says vengeance against its political and economic enemies has become Guatemala's public policy. Vengeance is definitely a strong word, says Brenda Guillén of Fedefegua, but when you analyze what's happening, we see retaliation using the system against indigenous and other human rights defenders. The government hasn't yet responded to the report. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort starting June 26th. Registration closes June 23rd at tribalselfgov.org. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, sitting in for Sean Spruce. The Yurok tribe hired its own investigator to assist with unsolved missing and murdered indigenous people cases. It's the latest action by the tribe in an aggressive public safety and awareness campaign to try and change the direction of troubling statistics. Some states are also making moves to try and make a difference, like looking at cold cases and working to solve law enforcement communications gaps with tribes. Today on our show, we'll get updates on recent MMIW or MMIP progress and hear from officials in Colorado, Wisconsin, and Washington State about addressing this crisis. We also want to hear from you. What efforts by your tribe or community are showing promise to improve the statistics for Native people? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also post or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Klamath, California, is Jessica Carter. She is the Yurok Tribal Court Director. She's Yurok. Welcome to Native America Calling, Jessica. Uh, good morning. Good morning. So uh, hiring an a investigator for the Yurok Tribe, what led to the tribe to hire an investigator just for missing and murdered indigenous people cases? Well, in um, 2019, we began research on the issue. We knew that there um, 
was a problem, and so we began researching, collecting data, doing interviews with community members as well as our local law enforcement partners. And one of the things that came out of the research was having a dedicated um, investigator position within the tribe so that um, tribal members as well as the tribe is informed on uh, current as well as cold cases and that um, family members uh, could know the status of, of their cases or provide information and tips to the investigator position so that they know that um, their voices are being heard. Okay. And who is this uh, in- investigator? Uh, we just recently hired her. Her name is Julia Oliveria. She has 25 years of relevant law enforcement. She actually worked at our local Humboldt County Sheriff's office as well as uh, the Blue Lake Tribal Police Department. So she has a wealth of experience in the area. Um, She's also on the U.S. Task Force on Researching Violence Against American Indians. So we're excited to have her on board. Um, She is fairly new to the position. It is a new position within the tribe. It is a new position within the state of California. It's the first position that we know of um, that is dedicated to this issue. So um, we're glad that she has this experience, and we're trying to get everything in, in place to get this um, position going. Okay. All right. And is uh, she Native? Yes, she is uh, from the Windot tribe. She's a tribal citizen. Okay. All right. And, um, you know, handling these cases and, um, you know, definitely navigating through the community and, and making those connections with law enforcement uh, takes a lot of, um, you know, experience on both sides, but definitely a lot of cultural experience. What, what, what is that? Uh, why is that important to have, you know, like a cultural, um, you know, mindset when you are working with uh, Native communities in on these cases well sometimes working with um, state or local law enforcement there is some distrust um, so people might not want to uh, report information that they might have so having somebody that is a tribal citizen that works with the tribe um, that is separate from law enforcement she actually works in our tribal prosecutor's office um, we're hoping that it'll bridge the gap with our community and our families so that they they have that um, connection and and can trust that their information is being followed okay. up on so um will will this investigator uh julia will she be like um handling individual cases and what what what, what does the work look like Well, she's already had a few uh, referrals of cases. We have a a young mother that's uh, missing in Delmar County, as well as um, a young mother that went missing down in um, Wichpec area on the Yurok Reservation. So she's already keeping up to speed on that. We have um, a monthly uh, MMIP roundtable with the local tribes. So we're working, um, if they have any cases, uh, we also have an internal MDT that we're creating so that we're communicating not only with our prosecutor and law enforcement, but our social services department and tribal court. Um, so just keeping everyone in, in the loop and, and identifying um, potential cases. Okay. And um, 
hiring uh, an investigator is that uh, is that pretty unique? Have you um, met with other uh, folks from other tribes who also have done the same thing? Um, I think it's definitely unique. Um, we are the f the first in California to have that MMIP investigator position, um, particularly dedicated to this issue. So um, I think it's unique. I haven't. Um, come across it within our research, but um, it's definitely something that came out of uh, working with families because some families do hire their own private investigators. So this is one that um, the tribal sanction that we receive funding for so that we um, here at the tribe have somebody that families can go to. Okay. And, um, you know, hiring an, hiring an investigator is uh, the latest in a bold series of actions by the Yurok tribe, including declaring uh, an emergency, uh, organizing a state summit on this issue. Uh, is any of this making a difference? I believe so. It's keeping the issue alive. It's, it's the tribe taking a stance against uh, violence against our, our women. Um, making sure that, that these cases aren't forgotten. Um, these are uh, members of our community, their, their mothers, their daughters. Like we, we're, um, I think the tribal council, our Yurok tribal council, they're taking a big stance on this. We did an MMIP uh, day of action at the state capitol. We're doing another awareness event. Like we are trying to make it known that this isn't an issue that we can just sweep under the rug, and that we we want resolved for for our families and and um, to bring our our members home. Okay. All right. And what other initiatives has uh, the tribe or the community um, gotten together on? Um, you know, in regards to MMIW. Well, we've, we've done the, um, the Tribal MMIP Summit uh, back in October where we brought a lot of um, state folks and local leaders as well as a lot of uh, tribal people to, to bring the issue forward. We, we were planning on doing another one um, this year. Uh, we, we did it here in Northern California. We want to be able to, to continue throughout the region of California. We also did the MMIP date of action. Um, we also do community events. We do, uh, we have um, art projects that we do with, with local community members. We um, do an MMIW uh, awareness event on May 5th, which is the national MMIW awareness event, as well as here locally within the tribe um, to just bring awareness and um, bring people together and bring families together to know that um, that we still care and um, we're trying to to bring resolve for them. Right, right. And, um, you know, how dire uh, right now is the MMIP crisis in Yurok? I mean, are, are there statistics or, or numbers of cases that, uh, you know, you guys are, are focusing on? So at the beginning of our, our research, we did start to compile a, a database. We have close to 200 um, people uh, listed in the database. That includes those that are missing and um, that were violently murdered or their cases are unsolved. Um, the 
the database, unfortunately, uh, we keep adding to it. Uh, when when we have updates, um, we are in California the the fifth highest number of MMIP cases. The database that we have is is for local tribal members that have gone missing or murdered, or people that are tribal members that um, come into our area that have gone missing and murdered. Um, majority of the cases, they are um, young mothers. Um, uh, the people that are responsible are a majority of the time are, are non-native people. Um, those are some of the, the information that we gathered. Okay. All right. And, uh, you know, are, are you working with um, maybe other tribes, uh, you know, as, um, you know, as like an example that could be used in other states with other tribes? Um, is, is that something that uh, you guys are working on? Yes, we um, we started an MMIP roundtable here within the tribe and we invited other um, local People that are working in, within the tribes that are working on this issue. So we have members from the, the Hoopa Valley tribe, the Trajan, Rhea, Bear River, uh, Quartz Valley, and it's also open to other tribes that want to join. Right now, we're meeting on a monthly basis. Um, we we want to bring issues forward that they have as well. Um, we want to co combat this issue together. Our MMIP Day of Action included um, members from tribes all over the state of California, because we know it's not just here locally, um, that it is something that's not only statewide, but nationwide. All right. All right. Thank you. That was, uh, that's uh, Jessica Carter, Yurok Tribal Court Director. We'll hear more from her after this break, but you can join the conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Tribal leaders in Canada declared a state of emergency after a series of deaths they say are preventable. They say the federal government is not doing enough to fight drugs, mental health, and health care deficiencies. We'll find out about the need among some First Nations communities and the prospects for solutions on the next Native America Calling. Our precious relatives, if you are age 45 years or older, it may be time to talk with a healthcare professional about correctal cancer screening. Medicare, Medicaid, and the marketplace have you covered. For more information, visit healthcare.gov or call 800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We're speaking with different tribes and other advocates about efforts in addressing the MMIP crisis that's missing and murdered indigenous people, we uh, persons. Uh, we also want to hear from you. How is your tribe handling MMIP cases? What strategies have been effective?
Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'm going to go back to our guest, Jessica Carter in Klamath, California. She's the Yurok Tribal Court Director. Uh, Jessica, what, how has it been um, strengthening relationships and ties with state officials in California? Um, I think they are definitely on board um, with trying to address this issue. They know that the York tribe um, has this as a high priority. Um, one of the things we did was request from the governor's office to put money forward to not only um, intervene on this issue, but also to prevent future violence. Um, the, the governor did put aside $15 million in his budget last year to do a, a regional um, treatment center for the tribes here locally. So we are in the planning stages. We're hoping to get that up and um, up and going. I know that's a, a huge resource that um, the tribes here locally um, want to want to have um, for our people. Um, so I think that meeting with our local legislators, um, they are definitely on board uh, where they can. Um, so. All right. And where can we learn more about uh, these efforts in Yurok? How, how, how can we, um, you know, keep an eye on what you guys are doing? We have a, a, our own tribal court website. It's yuroktribalcourt.org. Uh, you can find information on our Taki Skuisan Newochek program. That's I will see you in a good way uh, program that started out of the research from um, 2019. You can find the three reports that were, were drafted, um, as well as the Yurok Tribes uh, website. There's also um, news and information on that website. The Yurok Tribe um, also has a Facebook page where we post a lot of um, the information that we're doing on our website and Facebook. All right. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, I'd like to bring in another guest here uh, from Ignacio, Cal Colorado, is Daisy Blue Star. She's a member of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives Task Force in Colorado, and she is a Southern Ute. Welcome to Native America Calling, Daisy. My Pamanerni. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, so, so tell me about the history of this uh, task force in Colorado. So um, when I became a member or a part of the um, MMIR task force of Colorado, um, they were working on the Senate Bill 22150, which would um, open up an office for MMIR. Um, and that has been accomplished. Since then, um, in June, um, it was signed last year in June, and then we requested a missing Indigenous persons uh, alert, which was um, initiated December 30th of last year. So the office has been open and it's been in full effect um, okay. since. Yeah. So it's been it's been successful. Um, there are some things that still need to be worked on, and everything's a learning process. So we're definitely trying to fight through those um, those learning processes at the moment. Yeah. Uh, so how does the task force uh, work? What what's what's the mission? So as of right now, um, the task force works together to um, get these bills 
uh, passed with Senator Jesse Danielson here in Colorado. Um, right now, they're currently working on a bill, SB uh, 23054, which would um, train victim advocates, and it would be, I guess you would say it would be for getting employees to work with families and to kind of assist the director or the new position open in the MMIR office. So um, along with that, we do a lot of the search and rescues. We've had to do two uh, search and rescues. One was here in Ignacio, Colorado. Um, around November 27th is when it began. And then December 3rd is when we located the individual. Um, that was an unfortunate circumstance. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had another one shortly after the alert system went out through the state of Colorado. Um, he was our first official um, search after the alert. So that was another unfortunate um, circumstance, and that was in the Denver area. So um, the, the MMIR Task Force of Colorado has been hands-on with passing bills, with search and rescue, with awareness, um, working with tribes, working with communities and just really trying to figure out how we can prevent our people from going missing or if they're in danger. Um, we have women all over the state of Colorado, so we have benefits there to where everybody is on board and everybody can kind of make moves um, however that needs to be done. Okay. What led you to work uh, with the task force? What what led you to this kind of work? Um, well, just the trauma, you know, of being an Indigenous child, a young girl, and then growing into, you know, an Indigenous woman, and then obviously seeing all the, the traumas and the hardships that we have to endure um, as Indigenous women. Um, and also having my own relatives who were murdered or, you know, went through the same types of things, eventually it became awareness to where, you know, we had to start raising awareness about this. And then I started realizing there were so many um, other women on the same path. I did get um, recruited, I guess you would say, by one of the task force members. Um, and so... From that point, everything just kind of picked up, and it was it was something I think that was just meant to to be um, just being an Indigenous woman and knowing what goes on in Indian country. Okay, all right, and uh, you know we just heard from Jessica that uh, you know this work is also just keeping uh, this issue in uh, public awareness. Uh, how are you guys doing that there in Colorado? So we work closely um, to the best of our ability with the um, new MMIR office, and we work closely with the um, CBI here in the state of Colorado, and we do a lot of awareness um, throughout the state of Colorado. We work with the Southern Ute Tribe, and, you know, we just constantly were pushing information. Any information that we receive, we... We have a Facebook page um, as of right now, and because we're kind of 
getting on our feet right now. Um, I can see like our website and everything will be coming at a later date. But um, we do work very well in our communities and just creating awareness walks, awareness rallies, um, being at the state capitol on important days, missing persons day um, for these bills to get passed. And then of course, just raising awareness within the communities of Colorado. Okay. All right. Um, uh, you mentioned you guys are coming up with a website pretty soon. Uh, just before the show started, you also mentioned that you guys are working on your uh, nonprofit status too. So, um, you know, a lot of lot of uh, work coming up ahead for for everybody there. But um, how has it been? Uh, you know, building a relationship with the state and uh, state law enforcement and all the other agencies that are involved with this issue um, I believe we have um, like I said Senator Jesse Danielson who's been the backbone of helping us through these processes um, I feel like we do come upon some um, you know sometimes we come upon issues because law enforcement and you know people who are already in this line of work believe that maybe this isn't as important because they already feel like they have the policies and the ways of working. And, you know, we just fall under the scale of everybody else. Um, unfortunately, as Indigenous people, we're probably um, the least to be looked at and more than likely to be looked over. So I don't think that in most cases, law enforcement grasps the idea of exactly why we're fighting and why we're standing up. Um, we're tired of our people going missing. We're tired of cold cases. Um, I had a relative who's, who went into the cold case and some of our other task members, task force members, and, you know, it just, it takes too long that our Native voices go unheard. And I think right now we're really trying to stop that and we're really trying to push the importance to law enforcement, whether it's local, state, you know, whatever it has to be, to say, no, now we're going to look for our people. Whether you look for them or whether we look for them, we're going we're gonna to find our people. And that's the importance of every woman um, on the task force right now is that I really love the energy of each and every one of them because everybody brings that strength that we will find our people. And we've had a very, you know, for just getting started, I feel like we've had a success rate that I can say that I'm proud of and honored to be a part of because before this um, MMIP began, there was very low success rate. Not all of them are the best circumstances at the end of the day, but the reality is that the more we've come together, the more we've worked with law enforcement, the state, with, with our awareness, the more success that we have had. And I hope that it continues and I hope that, you know, it gets down to the point that we we don't have to have these missing per persons alerts anymore. Right. And are you guys working on any kind of uh, research or is there already maybe some uh, statistics out there about uh, missing and murdered indigenous persons in Colorado? So for the state of Colorado, we have 79 um, four who are not counted um, are 
not officially identified as Native American, but they're on our statistics list. Mm-hmm. Um, we have 10 um, since the alert and two that should have been um, reported, but they never were. And we have about one MMIR per week um, in the state of Colorado. So with that, we have um, law enforcement has about eight hours to report to the Colorado investigation um, of a missing indigenous person adult. And they have two hours to report a child that's gone missing. And so in reality, these um, with the way this works, the majority of the time, families will reach out to the task force. In some cases, they might reach out to law enforcement, but within that time frame, it's a critical time to get on top of everything and get this, the information out and start searching and start making sure that our families are brought home. Um, there's been instances where it's been five days and five days is five days too long. Mm-hmm. You know, and those were the days that we lost those people, you know, to unfortunate circumstances, and that was unacceptable. Um, right now, we have a juvenile who uh, recently reported. We got the information, and his report was seven days. So that's seven days too long, you know, and these are critical because, like I said, we've done uh, two searches already, and those those were not good turnouts. So we want to try to eliminate um those types of things as much as possible. We really need law enforcement to take serious the reporting time. We really need law enforcement to take serious, you know, when they get out there, when they start searching, who's searching. Like we we dig deep into who's being responsible, who's being accountable. And, you know, sometimes the task force we might be a pain to them, but the reality is we have to kind of be a pain because we need to make sure we bring our people home. Got it. All right. I'd like to bring in a caller. We have Yaya in Albuquerque, New Mexico, listening on KUNM. Hey, Yaya. Uh, Half a die. Um, I represent the Chamorro people. We are the flying proa families from Merizo, Guajan. We're not federally recognized, but we are still a United States colony. I'm calling from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I have been um, documenting the intersectional areas between BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs jurisdiction, with state law enforcement. And I have been documenting the silence of communication uh, that exists between BIA and New Mexico law enforcement. And I wanted to share with the community and everyone trying to bring relief to our families and all those of us that are trying to reunite with our families. That is in the interest of state police and local law enforcement, so-called, to keep that silence in those intersectional gray areas because um, continuing the tradition of colonization it is still being used as the spaces where all the clandestine um, uh, uh, activities from law enforcement are executed um, in order to prevent accountability and in order to uh, avoid social responsibility for their actions. I wanted to share that in these sections, in these areas where 
uh, if the BIA is not informed um, of the activities and the crimes being committed, both by local law enforcement, I have even documented uh, local politicians using these spaces as a way to communicate uh, with community activists and um, in order to avoid accountability. Got it. All right. Thank you so much for calling in, Yaya. If uh, you want to get in on this conversation, we're talking about addressing the missing and murdered indigenous women, uh, people, uh, persons and relatives issue uh, goes by a couple of different names in, in different areas across the country but there are uh, lots of lots of people who are um, uh, mobilizing and uh, you know creating different uh, movements you know in grassroots at the grassroots level they are in um, you know working with state uh, policy makers uh, there's a lot of movement going on. If there's a uh, movement like that happening in your tribal community or local community, uh, tell us about it. Give us a call. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll be back after this break. Smoking gave me COPD which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not gonna be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. And I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We're giving updates from different communities about the MMIP crisis and talking with task force members. There's still some time to join our conversation with your comments or questions. You can call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Washington State is Annie Forsman-Adams. She is the policy and uh, analyst for the Washington State Missing and Murdered Women and People Task Force, and she is Suquamish. Welcome to Native America Calling, Annie. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining. Uh, so what is the policy situation when it comes to this issues? I mean, what kind of policies are helping and, and what are some of the hurdles? Yeah, so we, uh, in Washington State, we've been able to put forth some uh, really good policy recommendations. We uh, put them forth in our interim report um, that looked at kind of the, I guess, for lack of a better word, the bad policy that we're trying to unravel, but also put forth some uh, some policy changes that involved communicating the communication between law enforcement um, the communication with families, the way that social service programs address families and talk with families and things like that. We also were able to pass um, our missing Indigenous persons alert system last session, and then we have a, um, a, a policy bill in um, this, this session that looks at developing a cold case unit uh, for the state of Washington. 
Okay. And what does it take to come up with, uh, you know, policy uh, from the ground up? And what does it take to uh, change policy that's already established? Yeah, so first, we really start with centering the experiences of families and impacted communities. So they're the ones that are closest to to the solutions to this problem, right? And in many cases, they already have the solutions to to the issues. They just need someone to listen to them. And so we have uh, in our task force – in the state has uh, and its subcommittees has met over a hundred times over the last year, year and some months. And we have spent a lot of that time listening to families, listening to tribes, listening to impacted community members who have said, you know, we've been living with this reality for a long time. And these are the things that we think uh, that could be put in place that could change the outcomes for future generations. And so that's where where good policy really starts, is listening to impacted community members and centering their experiences uh, every step of the way. And then uh, then we have to go through the process of identifying some some of the more harmful policy and what is it, uh, how is it impacting the MMIWP crisis in our state and region, and how do we um, start to kind of unravel some of that. And uh, so it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of listening, it's a lot of learning, it's a lot of just really sitting with the policy and understanding how it impacts uh, impacts tribes, impacts indigenous communities, and then um, looking at how to dismantle that uh, so that we are protecting everyone in our state. Got it. And um, is there pushback from elected leaders or members of the public who wonder why uh, officials need to devote resources to a single population? Yeah, we get a little bit of pushback um, from from the public mostly. Uh, our legislature, our governor's office, and of course the attorney general's office where the task force is housed is very supportive of the task force and understands that this this crisis didn't happen by accident, right? This was a um, this is the the natural progression of of generations of oppression, of colonial violence, of things like that. And so we have to devote resources to this because it's a very specialized problem. And so we do get a little bit of pushback sometimes from from members of the public, uh, but we try to just use that as a teaching moment to educate folks as to why Indigenous communities need these specialized resources and why we're paying attention to the the effects on um you know with indigenous people per, uh, particularly and so we try to kind of turn that into into a teaching moment and then we also try to really uh, focus on how when we make the world safer for indigenous people and indigenous women we make the world safer for everyone and so the 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 benefits to addressing the violence that indigenous people are experiencing is is helpful to addressing violence against everyone Right. So what kind of information on MMI uh, WP is available from Washington State and is it hard to get access to good data? Yeah, the the issue with data is probably our number one obstacle. 
we still are really, uh, you know, even a year into the task force, really trying to wrap our arms around how data is collected, where it's collected, how the databases talk to each other, uh, who has access to what database, and we're really still trying to unravel that and understand that. Uh, Washington State Patrol right now keeps a list of missing missing Indigenous people um, that's updated every two weeks on their website. So we have some. We have some good data about who's missing and who is found. Um, we have some good we have some good data about uh, homicide rates through our Department of Health and through our homicide investigative tracking system uh, within the state of Washington. So we have some good places to start. Um, it, but we're still really trying to understand uh, the the data, and it is still very incomplete. Right, right. And you mentioned a couple of uh, different places you're getting data from. What, what other places is uh, data available? Uh, so right now, the data, we're looking at where the data exists already. Like, how is it already be co being collected? So we're looking at things like NamUs at um, uh, the National Crime uh National Crime Information Center and CIC, which is a federal database. We're looking at different state databases and things like that, and really trying to identify where the gaps in that data are um, to see what kind of solutions we can put forward to, to collecting more complete data. So we know that the data is incomplete, and it's really hard to kind of say, like, what are the best places to look for data, because not all of it is available to the public, and not all of it is, is, is accurate. Um, but I would, so I would say those places that I mentioned, kind of looking at Washington State Patrol, uh, you can look at the, the Department of Health website um, for, for homicide data and kind of looking at that. And then we also published some data about cold cases in our interim report, which can be uh, found online. Okay. All right. And um, the task force has had two meetings so far. Uh, so, so what is the progress? Yeah, we really um, have... What we've really done, we've really started to identify um, where we can make, where we can take action immediately. So our first interim report um, looked had ten unanimously approved recommendations that uh, looked at what can communities, law enforcement, social service programs, and state legislatures do now to address the crisis. We want to make sure that we're taking a very action-oriented um, approach to this and that there are things that we can start doing now. We don't need to wait for a final report, but there are things we can start putting into motion now. Um, I think our biggest accomplishment to date was the um, is, um, the Missing Indigenous Persons Alert System, which was the first one in the, in the, in the nation. Um, and then I, you know, we heard from other callers that other states have followed suit. And so we um, are really proud of that legislation, and it has uh, really been working well for our state. And um, we have really started to have conversations that haven't been had before. So we meet, um, we you know, hold law enforcement roundtables, tribal roundtables, things like that, that start a, a difficult conversation. This stuff is hard to talk about. But these conversations had not been had between, you know, tribal governments and state governments and um, grassroots activists and things like that. And so we're bringing everyone to the table to have this this conversation. Okay. 
All right. You mentioned the alert. I just wanted to uh, get a little bit more information about that. What what is what does this alert look like in the community? Um, if if you're living in the area, what kind of alert do you get? Yes. Yeah, so it's similar to a silver alert in our oh. seat. So mm-hmm. it. Um, goes on so uh, the alert is activated and if there is a vehicle associated with it it goes on the highway message boards um otherwise you can sign the community members can sign up through washington state patrol to get alerts when somebody goes missing it goes out to law enforcement agencies in the in the state um, and then law enforcement usually puts it on um, like their social media and things like that that's kind of an internal policy as to how law enforcement um, how law enforcement works, um, but the so you have to sign up for the alerts to get the alerts. Okay, all right. And um, so, what is what is needed? Um, you know, to to well, let me let me ask this question: uh, Is there some kind of model that uh, Washington State is following that uh, the task force is following um, in this work? Uh, I don't know if we have a have a, a model per se, but we really are trying to take a restorative justice approach. So we want to acknowledge that there have been past harms that we have generations of um, uh, of harm that have happened to Indigenous communities, at, at, and that some of the agencies running the task force or on the task force have participated in that harm. Right, so. Part of this is restoring that trust between the agencies and the indigenous communities, but also letting families know that we are, we're taking a different approach this time. We're here to listen. We're not forgetting about them. We want to hear about those experience, their experiences, and that that's what's important in this work is that we address what is actually happening to people in everyday life and that we um, make policy recommendations and we make um, and we move forward in a way that reflects that lived experience. Okay. And uh, what about cultural relevant uh, initiatives? H- how important is that? And how are you building, um, you know, that knowledge with uh, a- um, you know, some of the advocates that work with the task force? Yeah, so we are, we try to work closely with community members that can provide that cultural piece. And um, we try to provide that in every aspect that we do. So whether that's having, you know, so we do that from everything from um, have holding meetings on in tribal communities and in urban indigenous communities and inviting um, their, them to share about their culture and their, um, and, and their ways of ways of life and things like that, all the way to providing traditional healing for in family talking circles and trying to just incorporate these ways that we know work for indigenous communities. We know that that being um, very connected to our cultural and traditional ways uh, helps with healing and to try to bring that into the um, into every aspect of the task force. Okay. And what will the public have from the task force to better understand and tackle this issue? Well, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah, are there any uh, resources that the task force makes available for the public so that they can better understand this issue? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the we um, published our interim report in August, um, and that report talks a lot about the work that was kind of done done to date. And then we will have a follow up report um, coming in, uh, later this year. And um, then also you can go to our um, website. It's easiest if you just Google um, like Washington MMIWP Task Force, and you can go to our website. Uh, it has a calendar of our meetings. Um, and meeting information and things like that. We have uh, several subcommittees that are open to the public, and uh, it's a great place to learn about the issues, ask questions, and um, and get involved in the task force work. And we really welcome the public's uh, interaction and in, in our work. Okay. I know a lot of uh, folks who are drawn to uh, advocacy in uh, this issue, they do it for personal reasons. Uh, they know somebody who has gone uh, missing or, or was murdered. Um, you know, the, it's just been uh, a long-lasting uh, issue in their community. I mean, what, what kind of advice would you give to a person who's wanting to go into this kind of advocacy work? Work, uh, for MMIW? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think um, what's really important is to know yourself. Uh, this work is very, very emotionally and and spiritually difficult. And um, you are faced with a lot of things that that you think you're prepared for, and then when you have to deal with them in real time, it can be really, really overwhelming. So making sure that you have good support systems, that you have you know, supportive people in your life that um, understand, the, uh, understand the toll that this can take, and then also just uh, being really good about checking in with yourself and making sure that you take time off when you need it, that you say no to things when you need to, um, that you keep yourself emotionally and spiritually well, because that's what it takes to do this work. Um, you can't you can't do this work if you are if you're depleted in those areas, and um, it, it's hard because there's a lot of work to do, and it feels like it, it it never ends. But you have to remember to take care of yourself and to check in with yourself and to have good boundaries and have good self care. Right. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much for that, Annie. Uh, so we've reached the end of the hour. You can continue the conversation if you'd like on our social media pages. We're on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, you can look for us, uh, Native America Calling or at 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'd like to say thank you to our guests today, Jessica Carter, Daisy Blue Star, and Annie Forsman-Adams. Join us again tomorrow when we take a look at the plea for help by regional First Nations officials to adequately address shortcomings that they say are created, uh, that are creating a dire situation in Canada. I'm Andy Murphy. The Indian Arts and Crafts Act protects authentic American Indian and Alaska Native artists and craftspeople and their art and craftwork. Under the act, it is illegal to market art or craftwork misrepresented as American Indian, Indian, Native American, or Alaska Native made, or as the product of a particular Indian tribe. Reporting potential act violations can be done at doi.gov IACB or at 1-888-ART-FAKE. Support provided by Indian Arts and Crafts Board. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium. 
the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.